So tonight, I want to direct your attention to the final benefit listed in the catechism we read earlier. Perseverance therein to the end. In our context, the word perseverance conjures up images of people like the inventor Thomas Edison, who during his quest to construct an electric light bulb famously said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Some might think of the Christian statesman, William Wilberforce, who introduced anti-slavery bills to the English parliament in the year 1791, 92, 93, 97, 98, 99, 1804, and 05, despite great obstacles. And for our younger congregants today, you may even think of the storybook, The Little Engine That Could, in which that little engine defied all odds to deliver his cargo to the other side of the mountain. And while these feats may be impressive, the biblical notion of perseverance is far more amazing and far more comforting to the Christian. I don't need to remind you of the troubles that assail us in this life. The world, the flesh, and the devil are hard at work against us. Catch the news and you'll see a disturbing amount of things that will grieve your soul. Christians all over the world battle against persecution from enemies of the Lord, even in their own families. But it's not just the world out there. Even a glance at our own hearts is enough to grieve us. It is in the midst of such a miserable world that we need hope. Not a temporary or false hope, not band-aids or the prospects of living our best lives now. We need genuine hope. So tonight, we turn to the excerpts to, the, to our excerpt of the Apostle Peter's letter to the Christian exiles scattered due to persecution. And from our text, I wish to explicate the who, the what, and the how of the perseverance that Peter describes. First, the who. Peter begins his letter, as most letters of that time period did, addressing the people he's writing to. He writes, To those who are elect exiles, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Interestingly, he does not identify them as we might identify ourselves, with markers of nationality, age, generation, or career. Instead, he identifies them centrally by their eternal estate before God, the fact that they are elect, chosen by God to be his people. And this is not exclusive to Peter. Consider how the other epistles are addressed to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Romans chapter 1. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Ephesians chapter 1. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, 1 John chapter 5. In a world so consumed by identity politics, let us take heed of the way in which the apostles John, Peter, and Paul address their fellow men and women. To the apostles, the identity of Christian is centrally about being in Christ. As we heard in these openings, 
In Christ Jesus, the Christian believes in the name of the Son of God. In Christ Jesus, he is loved by God. In Christ Jesus, he is called to be a saint. And in verse 2, here in our passage, in Christ Jesus, the Christian is numbered among the elect, chosen by God before the foundation of the earth. And friends, we who are in Christ Jesus are also numbered among the elect. Verse 2 tells us that we are chosen by God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What a beautiful truth. Not only did God choose us to be his covenant people, he did so for knowing every word you would say, every deed you would do, and every thought you would think. Because he counted Jesus' work on the cross to be sufficient. What a merciful father we have. Just two months ago, I was married to my college sweetheart, Esther. And she will occasionally ask me why I love her. And before I tell her some of the things that make her, her, I always make sure to answer first with, I love you because I chose you. Make no mistake, it's not because I'm so, such, a, such a great catch or anything like that. But instead, I intend to communicate that my love for her is rooted upon, her, upon our marriage covenant and that my love is centrally about my commitment to her. When I read my vows, I showed that my love is not predicated upon her appearance or how she makes me feel inside, although these are great things and are gifts from the Lord. The Proverbs tell us that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. And we know that feelings are good and all until the reality of life hits and you wake up that one morning groggy and you snap. Instead, I chose her as my beloved bride and made a commitment to choose to love her even when our beauties fade, even when the feelings aren't quite as they should be, and even when trials afflict us. Isn't that what death do us part means? This is the fruit of my election of Esther. And if I, a fallen human being as I, selfish and self-seeking as I am, hold fast to Esther, how much more would God hold fast to us, his chosen beloved? Need I remind you of the character of our Lord, he who does not sleep nor slumber while keeping his covenant people, Psalm 121. He who is working all things together for the good of those who love him, Romans 8. He who declares himself the great I am because he changes not. This is the God who has chosen and elected you. So Christian, when you're struggling with persistent sin in your life, when you're afflicted by trials and temptations, when you're cumbered with a load of care, when you're assaulted by griefs, frustrations, and worries. Remember the deep promises of God, whose promises to preserve and keep you shall stand forever, even when the grass withers and the flower fades. He has elected you to be his, and this means that he will not suddenly change course from his plan to save you. He will not turn aside from you he will not change his mind about you. 
If you are a Christian, he has chosen you and written your name in the book of life. And that is an eternal ruling that will never, ever change. And it is this glorious truth that allows Peter to sing that great refrain in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter also tells us that we are not merely chosen and then ignored. Not merely elected and then left to our own devices. Instead, verse 2, we are the elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. Further, not only is the sanctification of the Spirit sure, we are guarded by God's power, verse 5. That means that we Christians are not like the Amazon package that someone blindly chooses and tosses aside once it arrives. Before God, we are a treasured possession, precious in his holy sight, cherished, loved, and so guided by the Spirit all the days of our lives. That brings me to my second point. We've established established that the saints, God's people, are being preserved by God. But what are we being preserved for? What is our objective, our chief end? Verse 3 to 4 of our passage read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Friends, we are not merely saved. We are saved to something. And that something is a living hope, an inheritance kept in heaven for us. Throughout the passage, Peter describes the surety of our hope. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Unlike the treasures of this earth, which are so flimsy, ephemeral, and unsatisfactory, destroyed by my my moths and rust, stolen by thieves, ruined by stock market declines and inflation, our hope is kept in heaven for us unchanged, undefiled by time or the whims of the global economy. After all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, we do have hope in the next life, wherein we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christ says as much in John's Gospel, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the imperishable, eternal, and undefiled inheritance awaiting our eternal selves. But let me ask you, how can we be sure that we will cash out on this inheritance? Is there anything we must do to receive that inheritance? Well, turn with me to verses 5 and 7 of our passage, which tell us that our inheritance is being kept and is ready for us and is simply waiting for one thing and one thing alone, the revelation of Christ. That means we do not need to redeem the culture. We do not need to take up arms and fight the enemies of Christ. 
We do not need to bring the kingdom of God near by our efforts. Moreover, we cannot. We are not redeemers. We are not co-partners with Christ in redemption. We are not his culture warriors. Christ is our redeemer. And he will accomplish such things at his coming when he, as he sees fit. And we, as the words born again and inheritance in verse 3 to 4 suggest, we are merely his children, recipients of God's great mercy. After all, what do children have to do to, wait, to, uh, to, to receive an inheritance? But wait. And consider why Peter uses this language of birth and adoption. Just as we cannot cause our own physical births, we are not born again or adopted into the family of God because of our own merit, but because of his grace, lavishly poured out upon us. Call to mind the example of David, who writes in Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Pretty beautiful words, but consider who these words are coming from. Wasn't David a man who looked in the face of the giant Goliath, who was hungry for his blood? Wasn't he the man who lived as an outlaw, running from a jealous Saul who tried to kill him? Wasn't he the man who struggled mightily with the guilt of his heinous sin with Bathsheba against Uriah? Wasn't he the man who had his own sons try to usurp the throne from him? How could such a man write a psalm like this? How could he say that he was fearless, that he could fear no evil? Well, he was sure that God was with him. He was sure that God would preserve him until he dwelled in the house of the Lord forever. David was a king of a nation. He could have had everything he wanted, yet he looked not to an earthly inheritance, but to the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven for him, the inexpressible joy of dwelling with God. So should we, brothers and sisters, Look heavenward to that glorious inheritance, far more precious than rare jewels and medals that awaits us. That leads us to our final point. If perseverance is not brought about by practice, practice, and more practice, or by a little engine that could mentality, by what means does God bring about the perseverance of his people? Here in verse 5 of our faith, Uh, Here in verse 5 of our passage, Peter describes how we are guarded by God's power through faith. Perseverance of the saints happens through the means of faith. Consider who wrote this epistle. Was it not Peter, the same man who boldly wielded a sword for Jesus, and yet denied even knowing him in front of a powerless slave girl? 
and ultimately denied the Savior three times. He knew better than most the trials and temptations that assail us, even those with genuine faith. And yet, in verses 6 to 7, he describes the benefits of such a beautiful inheritance. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What's evident in Peter's theology is the certainty of various trials and griefs that accompany the life of the Christian. Our lives are indeed characterized by great heaviness and continual sorrow. It's no wonder that the preacher in Ecclesiastes wails that the stillborn child is better off than he, even he who is born, lives a long life, has a hundred children, and dies. What then? Are we to grumble and give up because life is hard? Are we to despair uncontrollably? On the contrary, Peter reminds us that what emerges from the trials of this life is a tested faith, an exceedingly beautiful faith that results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let us draw three brief conclusions from the glorious verses 6 to 7. First, suffering is temporary. Notice the contrast of the verbs in verse 6. It says we rejoice in the present, active, continual sense. But we have been grieved by various trials only now for a little while. Peter writes about suffering in light of the eternal, the imperishable, and the unfading. Consider the Olympic athlete who trains until she feels like vomiting. Her lungs feel like giving out, and her heart pleads with her to stop and rest. What is her goal? She is driven by that glistening gold medal, the promise that her name will be in the history books, the assurance that her pain is temporary, but Olympic fame is forever. Obviously, we know that medals rust and records are meant to be broken. But you see the point. If the inheritance that awaits the athlete can make every blister, every sore muscle, and every strenuous workout worth it, how can we lose sight of that which awaits us? Christian, your suffering may indeed be profound. You may feel like a little raft in the middle of an ocean, battered by storms and waves. But know this, suffering does not outlive life. Peter assures us that suffering does indeed hurt, but grieves only for a little while. And soon thereafter, there will be that day when you will taunt death itself. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Second, afflictions make our faith precious and genuine. Verse 7 reads, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. What is gold but the most precious and valuable and useful of all the metals? But consider that gold is only valuable after it sits in the blazing furnace. 
with a scorching heat, melts off all the dross and purifies it. In some sense, if that's a picture of us, it's not a pretty picture for us. How many of us would voluntarily choose affliction? How many of us would voluntarily choose the furnace over the nice seaside breeze? But in God's economy, the trials of our lives, and especially those really, really, really difficult ones, are the ones that grow us the most, are they not? Do we ever pray more fervently and more faithfully than when we feel utterly helpless and utterly alone with no plan of action and no emergency rescue team on on its way? Do we ever experience the love of Christ more palpably than when a dear brother or sister prays for you or shows you kindness in the midst of a great struggle? Hear Paul's own reflection on the trials of his affliction in 2 Corinthians 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of, of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Dear Christians, the fact is that suffering is necessary and is doing something, namely testing our faith to make it precious and genuine. I pray that we can grow to be content with our difficulties like Paul, such that we may say with Charles Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Christ is our firm foundation. And when those persecution, when those afflictions, when those hardships and those insults hit, who do we cling on to but Christ himself? And third, suffering is worth it. Mercifully, we are not subject to a random or a sadistic God who punishes us, who punishes us as, as his, uh, at his whim. Instead, we worship God, who is sovereign over all things, who apportions everything as he sees fit and ordains everything according to his eternal purposes, including our, our suffering. If we remove the phrase between the dashes in verse 7, we get, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see how amazing that is? The fruit of suffering is a tested, genuine faith, which leads up to our praise, glory, and honor at the revealing of Christ. Christ himself will commend us, honor us, esteem us, and grant us glory in our glorification. This is our reward. To be commended by God in Christ for our faith. Can you imagine that? How great is the promise of a hard-fought life, casting down our crowns before the Father, killing the sin that we used to love, 
warring against temptations and trials, suffering under the hands of the foes of Christ, dying to ourselves and giving ourselves up for others. All of it will be worth it on that final day when Christ bids us come. And God himself will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. To conclude, notice that we are passive beings throughout this whole passage. We were caused to be born again. We are being guarded by God's power, etc. This is the real perseverance of the saints. Not an impassioned mustering up of strength wrought in one's own self to keep our hold onto salvation. But it's God ordaining it, Jesus accomplishing it in our stead, and the Spirit applying it to us according to his great mercy. So friends, take heart and have faith in Christ who secured a redemption from start to finish. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Remember that when Satan demanded to have Peter, to sift him like wheat, Jesus prayed for him that his faith may not fail. And where is Jesus right now? But at the right hand of the Father, praying for you at this very moment that your faith will not fail. Have faith. Look up to him, the Lamb of Calvary, the Savior divine, your firm foundation. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.